afternoon and welcome to the 140th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we will discuss what it would mean to have a just recovery from COVID-19 with a close-up look at Philadelphia. And I'm joined today by a co-host, and I'm really excited to bring Felicia Henry back to COVID Calls. Felicia is a PhD student in the Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice at the University of Delaware. Her research interests include race, ethnicity, gender, criminal justice, and mass incarceration, social vulnerability and resilience in disasters and communities. She's a licensed social worker and Felicia received her master's of social work degree from the School of Public Social Policy and Practice at the University of Pennsylvania. Felicia is also a Bill Anderson Fund Fellow. Felicia, hello and welcome back to COVID Calls. Hi. I was really happy that you could uh, join me for this discussion today. And you were, just to remind folks, you were a guest with Monica Sanders on June 17th and the world has seemingly changed yet again since then. I was going back and looking at some of the data. As of that day, when we last talked on COVID calls, 117,423 Americans had died at that point. Can you give us an update on, on how things have been for you in these, in these intervening months? Yeah, I will say that I'm grateful that, um, for first, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be back. Um, our discussion was amazing and, and really kind of sparked a lot of um, what ended up becoming more and more of my work. And so I'm very grateful for that opportunity and also grateful for being back. Um, I think for me, I'm, I'm really grateful that, uh, you know, even with all of the things that are going on, my family, my loved ones have remained safe. And healthy, and so you know, I don't take that for granted because I know that we are now over 200,000 Americans um, having passed away from COVID, and so you know, as we continue to see those numbers increasing, I'm just um, taking each day and being grateful for it. Um, otherwise, I'm you know back in school doing remote learning and just trying to figure out how to juggle that and balance that with you know day-to-day -day activities. And so, um, yeah, it's it's I'm I'm doing well, I must say, but um, it is. It is, it is something, it is something. Well, thanks for that update. It's kind of the impossible question and people get asked these now, how are you doing? It's like, we don't even know how to, how to answer that question, right. but I'm glad you're, I'm glad schools is going okay. You've started classes and they're all remote. Yeah, all remote. Well, I'm gonna read some of the um, statistics and things for today, and then I'll bring you back in just a second to read the obituary. I just wanna remind people you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word, send suggestions for future guests, future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, October the 2nd, 2020, there are 1,024,739 deaths globally from COVID-19. According to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, there are 7,292,422 cases in the United States, up from 7,245,228 cases reported yesterday. And of course, as you know, among those cases, two that have made news today, President Trump and First Lady Melania Trump uh, were, was announced early this morning, uh, have tested positive for COVID-19 and wishing the best for them. And I know they will both receive excellent medical care and, and the kind of care that I wish for all Americans who suffer from this virus. There are now a total of 208,068 deaths reported in the United States from 207,211 reported yesterday. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way and would like to continue that now. And I've asked Felicia if she would uh, mind doing this. So Felicia, I'm gonna turn it over to you. 
Sure, thanks. So the headline, he died in prison from the coronavirus three days before a breakthrough in his 30-year fight to clear his name. This is by Jeremy Roebuck, April 15th in the Philadelphia Inquirer. On Saturday, April 11th, Rudolph Sutton's son said he got news that he had waited 30 years to hear. Philadelphia prosecutors would review his father's claim that he'd been wrongfully imprisoned for a 1988 murder in South Philadelphia. But the son had news of his own for the defense lawyers on the other end of the line. Sutton, 67 years old, had died three days earlier, the first state prison incarcerated person to succumb to the coronavirus. In an interview days after that call, Sutton's son, Rudolfo, said life never did move quite quickly enough to work in his father's favor. It took decades for witnesses supporting his story to come forward. It had taken years for the father and son to rebuild their relationship after Sutton's life sentence took him away. And over the last month, as Sutton's chest pains and trouble breathing grew increasingly worse, it took medical examiners days after he had died to pinpoint exactly why. The impact of the virus on incarcerated people has been growing exponentially across the country and the state. 17 have fallen ill at State Correctional Institution Phoenix, the prison where Sutton was held. His death reinforces how quickly the disease can spread in cramped correctional facilities and the fateful consequences of an outbreak behind bars. When he was doing everything right, everyone seemed slow to respond. And when he was doing wrong, they acted quickly, Rodolfo Sutton said. That seemed to be the story of his life. Rudolfo, now a 37-year-old real estate investigator in Collindale, was only seven when a jury found his father and three other men guilty in the fatal stabbing of 33-year-old Dewey Mackey in a battle over drug turf in South Philadelphia. Prosecutors contended that Sutton had rounded up the others to commit the crime after learning that Mackey was selling fake drugs in a house normally used by a Jamaican gang. Though Sutton had always maintained his innocence, his family cut off contact between him and his eight children after the conviction. It wasn't until Rudolfo was 21 that he had had his next conversation with his father. Despite their years of separation, father and son quickly forged a bond, first with weekly phone calls, phone check-ins, then periodic visits. Eventually, they were talking every day, and within years, Rudolfo had become his father's greatest advocate. A Marine veteran, Sutton had become an avid reader in prison studying philosophy, computer science, art, and poetry. My relationship with him became everything I could have hoped for, Rodolfo said. And so to help his father, Rodolfo hired a new lawyer and lobbied the, the Pennsylvania Innocence Project to take on his case. The justice system moved slowly, but father and son deepened their bond by the day. The first signs of trouble with Sutton's health came in early March, days before Montgomery County would report its first coronavirus case. Complaining of chest pain, Sutton was taken to the Einstein Medical Center. He returned to the prison after 10 days. But instead of getting better, Sutton's condition only grew worse. Still, even after SCI Phoenix confirmed its first coronavirus case, it did not immediately occur to Rudolfo that his father might have been infected. He had complications with diabetes, a possible heart attack, liver problems, and high blood pressure, he said. He had an ability to smell, and taste food, but we didn't know that that was a symptom at the time. Every day he would tell me, I don't know how much longer this is going to last, Rudolfo said. He would say, I'm trapped in here waiting to die. In late March, father and son managed to connect over video chat after the prison suspended in-person visits. With his dad on the screen, frail looking, confined to a wheelchair, and with a mask hanging around his neck, Rudolfo shared with him for the first time relics of the life that he had missed. A photo of Rudolfo's 10-year-old daughter, the first Sutton had seen since her birth. The obituary for another of Sutton's sons who had also served in the armed forces but died in 2013 without ever mending his relationship with his father. You could hear the pride in Sutton's voice, Rudolfo said. He finally got to see what his son looked like as an adult. Meanwhile, the Innocence Project was wrapping up its five-year investigation of Sutton's case, concluding that he and his co-defendants were likely innocent. Attorneys reached out in early March to the unit in the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office, charged with reviewing past convictions to share their findings. Among them, the central witness during the 1990 trial, a man who had also been charged and testified against the four others, had initially identified another man as the killer. Also, a new witness had come forward saying he had seen the killing as a 12-year-old and had tried to tell detectives back then that Sutton and his co-defendants, whom he knew from the neighborhood, weren't to blame. Sutton and his son would talk a few more times in the following days, 
Each time the elder's man's breathing grew noticeably worse, pausing and panting the two words. During one phone call, April 6, Rudolph fell silent, mid-sentence. I wondered if he died on the phone, Rudolfo said. He said that he just needed to catch his breath. Rudolfo missed four calls from his father the next day. The next time he picked up a call from the prison, there was another voice on the end of the line. His father was dead. It took three days for medical examiners to confirm Sutton died from the coronavirus. That same day, the Innocence Project called Rudolfo to say that it had submitted his father's case to the district attorney's office. We waited 30 years for this, Rodolfo said. I was concerned that he wasn't going to make it out in time, and that's exactly what happened. In a statement, the Innocence Project legal director, Nilam Sangavi, said, Mr. Sutton should have never been incarcerated in the first place. His tragic death underscores the urgent need for the governor, the Department of Corrections, the legislature, and the courts to act quickly so that another factually innocent person does not with death in prison due to COVID-19. In the meantime, Rodolfo said that he intends to live by the advice that his father gave him, gave him. He would always tell me, it didn't matter where you are, as long as you know who you are, Rodolfo said. I'm focused now. I want to see him get the justice he never got while he was alive. I want to know what happened to him in that prison, and I want to see his conviction overturned. I'd like to turn to our discussion for today. And to do that, I'm gonna introduce our two additional guests. Let me bring them onto the screen. Salim Chapman serves as Philadelphia's first chief resilience officer and the deputy director for the Philadelphia Office of Sustainability. In these roles, Salim oversees the creation and implementation of climate preparedness and resilience strategies. He's also responsible for implementing and supporting GreenWorks, a vision for a sustainable Philadelphia and applying an equity lens to sustainability. Before joining the city of Philadelphia, Salim amassed a vast array of experience in the sustainability field, including professional work in urban policy analysis, environmental justice, and sustainable economic development. Let me also introduce David Kopisch. He's the director of strategy for the Hope Center for College Community and Justice. David was co-founder of Power, an interfaith movement where for 11 years, he helped the organization achieve significant policy wins, including a fair formula for the equitable distribution of public school funding in Pennsylvania, fair wages and treatment for workers on city subcontracts, and criminal justice reforms to reduce Philadelphia's jail population. David's work with the Women's Community Revitalization Project and a coalition of housing activists, practitioners, and academics helped create the Philadelphia Housing Trust Fund, which has generated more than $150 million in new revenue to expand access to affordable housing since 2005. David's earlier career included work with several other grassroots and community development organizations in Philadelphia. He holds a Master of Social Work degree from Temple and is a lecturer in the School of Social Policy and Practice at the University of Pennsylvania. So, Salim Chapman and David Kopisch, thank you so much for joining us today on COVID Calls. Thank you. It's good to be here. So I'm going to start the way that I usually do, which is just to find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation is looking like there today. Uh, Salim, can I start with you, please? Sure. Uh, I am calling in from my home in Mount Airy, uh, neighborhood of Philadelphia. And um, for me, I, I've been fortunate that um, COVID hasn't um, impacted any of my immediate family, but uh, there were those in last family. Who, who have come down with the virus and, and gracefully have, have recovered since then. What's, what's it been like working for the city in this time? Is everything remote? For my office, it, it is. Um, but there are um, particular departments um, that, you know, provide city services that actually are going into the, the office. But um, the office sustainability being more uh, of a policy-oriented uh, agency has sort of been able to move our um, work more more online and remote during this time. David, uh, same question to you. Where are you calling in from and, and how's it looking there? Sure. So I'm also calling from my home. Uh, I'm in University City, uh, Philadelphia. And uh, we were chatting earlier about um, having 
young people at home trying to do school here. So we have a we have a high schooler. Um, we have uh, my niece who's working remotely. Uh, my wife is also working remotely, and my daughter's doing remote college. So we're all drawing down our internet uh, capacities here, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, but yeah, just sort of hunkering down and doing, you know, what we can. Grateful that we have uh, jobs and and uh, school, such as it is. So. So the first question is for you, David. So you are one of the co-founders of Power and was there for 11 years. Can you tell us what kinds of issues were critical in your Sure. Work so if for folks who are not familiar with what Power is, it's a, it's an interfaith organizing uh, group. So uh, they, I say they, but we, I'm still you know a member, but not a staff person, uh, organizes through faith communities. So um, churches, synagogues, mosques, and, and other uh, houses of worship. And the idea is to tap into um, those networks and that community of folks who are close to neighborhoods, right, close to communities to, to work on the issues that most impact them. So through a series of what we call listening projects throughout the city, um, we identified through these 45-ish congregations, uh, pretty much four big areas that people wanted to work on. Uh, one was, uh, or still is, uh, equity in school funding for public schools. Um, and as was mentioned in the intro, uh, Power, with others, you know, certainly not alone, has worked for years on trying to get the state to uh, improve what has really been a racially inequitable system for distributing funds to public schools. So we were able to get the state to, to change that formula uh, and and the fight continues to actually get them to uh, implement the formula, right? So uh, Philly schools are still, and, and schools that are primarily um, uh, majority students of color are still getting not what they uh, should be getting through the formula that was passed. And so that work continues. Um, criminal justice reform, also a big issue that came up in, in conversations with these congregations. So Power with lots of groups has been working on things like uh, trying to reduce the use of cash bail in Philadelphia. So there has been some improvements in that area um, and some some signs of, of you know positive movement in, in terms of reducing the jail population uh, because of, uh, of, of uh, bail reform, but not not as far as a lot of people want to go. Um, and I think there's a lot of question about that. Speaking of the moment that we're in, you know, how does how does the current situation impact that? Right? Are are folks being um, you know released, and 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 how how is that going to impact uh, the future of those reforms? Um, other issues that Power works on uh, relate to. Um, living wages. So uh, Power started really with a big campaign around outsourced workers at the Philadelphia International Airport. So these are workers that are working for companies that have city contracts uh, to, to provide services and retail and, and, and uh, other things at the airport. Uh, and they were not um, uh, benefiting from a city ordinance that calls for anyone working for, for the city to have a, a certain wage level higher than the minimum wage. So Power pushed to to get those kinds of workers included under that uh, provision and eventually uh, got them to a $12 an hour and then eventually to a $15 an hour uh, wage, which was which was really quite, you know, and again, many groups worked on this. The, the unions representing those folks obviously were leaders in that too. But uh, the question now, I think for those folks is uh, even after those gains, right, many of those folks have lost their jobs, right? The airport for obvious reasons is, is, is suffering uh, and airlines are laying off people, which means a lot of those jobs are in jeopardy, and so uh, again, what 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 does it mean for the gains that were made over the last ten years on some of those issues? So, um, yeah, that's that. Those are kind of the big things that Power was working on, and um, now it's about you know how do, how do they get people to turn out to vote so that there might be a different kind of environment within which to work on these issues uh, in the coming years. So, David, just to follow up a little bit, and, and some of the things you're describing there are pretty big wins um, for working class Philadelphians. And I wonder what concerns you have right now. You alluded to one of them about the cash bail situation. You know, in the middle of this pandemic and the austerity and the economic collapse that's underway, what concerns do you have specifically? things that might be eroded, gains that might um, be pulled back in this time, especially as we go into 2021? 
Well, I think about um, the, uh, the 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 wage issue for subcontracted workers. So the, again, the 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 ordinance that got changed through city council was to classify this large set of workers that that work for companies that have contracts or subcontracts with the city, right? To get them included in the city. Um, it was called the 21st century living wage ordinance, which was essentially a higher a higher minimum wage. I guess the concern now would be, and 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 there are other folks from power who are who are engaged now that you might want on your show in the future to give you more of an update on this. But I think the concern now is that as we enter a period of austerity, probably right, um, city budget will be is being hit right. Um, those contracts and subcontracts that workers like airport workers and and, and others um, re rely on a healthy city budget to pay those contracts and those and then therefore those companies can turn around and pay you know a, a living wage you know what does that mean if if some of those contracts take a hit or if the city has to renegotiate some contracts with uh, let's say um, the security um, uh, providers at the airport not not um, law enforcement but you know private security what if the city has to renegotiate those contracts and negotiate down those contracts is that going to put pressure on the, the workers who eventually got to a $15 an hour wage is that is this going to kind of put pressure to reverse that if we're living in a in a time of austerity and, and you know sort of smaller contracts that would be one um, I think with the school, you know, the school issue, I guess, again, this, the school district obviously will, will be taking a hit in its budget. The state budget will be taking a hit. Um, even though the work that power was doing around equity in school um, funding distribution is, is somewhat of a, um, a budget neutral proposition. It was basically reallocating money in a more fair way, not, not gener you know, having to generate new money. I can imagine there being pushback at the state legislature to say, you know, look, this is now not the time to be putting more money into this or that school district because we can barely, you know, balance the state budget or, or something like that. So I can imagine arguments being made because of austerity that um, the kinds of things that power did work on are now harder to fulfill, let's say. The relief bill that passed and the relatively small amount of assistance that that went to uh, families early in the summer um, there's a, a, a way to imagine that there will be more of that um, I think whoever controls the White House there will be more of that if Democrats control the White House White House there'll be even more of that I think is how does that factor in here if at all and I wonder about that particularly because it does that become an argument for state legislatures not to mm crack down, you know, to say, well, you're getting federal help, so we need to be austerity-minded at the state level. But those cross-currents concern me a little bit in these kind of situations. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great point. I honestly don't, I, I don't, I don't know. You know, I think that's a big question. I think that's a really big question. Um, just to switch for a little bit, um, the, the, the more recent work I've been doing at, at the Hope Center at Temple University, we look at um, issues that impact particularly college students who are either first, in, first generation or low income uh, and the kind of challenges they face to stay in school and finish. Uh, and that has been what you're bringing up. Uh, it relates to that issue because a lot of colleges got and universities got CARES Act money, right, uh, which was mostly intended to go out directly to students to, to help meet their, their, their immediate needs. Um, you know, there, there's some questions now about, um, you know, was all of it given out and um, will colleges um, say, you know, that's all we had and we really can't do anymore because now our budgets are getting hit, obviously, as, as enrollment dips and um, schools are struggling to, to keep their budgets up, you know, may, Will they say, look, we can't do really much more for vulnerable students in this moment. We had CARES Act money, we gave it out, um, but there isn't much more here to, to, to try to support students. So that that is a concern, right? Um, the the um, temporary infusion of, of, uh, of federal dollars, you know, will, will that be sort of used as an excuse to say, well, right. that, that's, all, that's all we can do, you know, right. that's, all, that's right. all we had. 
Salim, I'd like to bring you in now and maybe just start out with kind of a general question. Tell us a little bit about your your work in the Office of Sustainability and maybe how it's changed uh, in these last few months. Yeah, so um, thank you for that question. So in the Office of Sustainability, um, I lead the efforts to really think about what are some of the future conditions that the city will face in the context of uh, climate change and thinking about how we prepare our residents, businesses, institutions, and civic community to really respond to those changes, but also to take advantage of those changes as, as well. Um, in addition to that, we uh, work pretty robustly on our um, ensuring that we're applying a racial equity lens to sustainability work. And one of the key uh, initiatives that our office has been leading up is helping to establish the city's first environmental justice advisory commission which is really targeted at um, bringing the right folks to the table to really help inform city policies and really think about the ways in which city policies and programs are contributing to um, environmental justice or the ways in which they might be limiting that. So that's sort of the, the focus of my work. And, um, you know, my work hit a sort of climax at uh, the earlier part of this year. So uh, when, when Mayor Jim Kenney was, was re-inaugurated um, in January, he committed to creating the position of Chief Resiliency Officer, which is the position I now hold, and also to committing to making climate resilience a, a key focus of a second term. In addition to that, racial equity was also sort of um, identified as a key priority as well. And I, that's really important um, to acknowledge because even with COVID happening, you know, we were already thinking about how do we really address those things in a really concerted and holistic way. And so COVID, um, merely only provided a proxy for what we could expect uh, from climate change, right? It, it, it sort of exposed the intersections of race, class, place, and invisibility. And so in that way, um, we were able to sort of really look at that as a way to kind of test the systems um, and really think about where do we need to be honing our interventions um, in a way that really will make the greatest impact. But the, the, the interesting part is that we were already sort of thinking through a lot of those strategies um, to take advantage of disruptions that, that we've seen such as such as COVID. Yeah, so you're talking about kind of looking at uh, environmental justice or sustainability through this racial equity lens and also thinking about this environmental justice task force. So can you talk a little bit more about how COVID-19 recovery and environmental sustainability overlap? And then even further thinking about how we can foster a just economy recovery without exacerbate, exacerbating further environmental injustice. So we kind of talking a little bit more about that nexus that you just brought up. Yeah, so I think in a lot of ways what we have to be sensitive to is really thinking about how we are thinking about recovery, right? So, you know, we have to really acknowledge the fact that there were pre-existing conditions that made certain groups, particularly racial groups, uh, more vulnerable to the impacts of COVID um, in the same way that we'll see, you know, those impacts playing out in the environmental space, right? So if we think about living in multi-generational housing, living in uh, neighborhoods that's prone to being displaced, thinking about living in flood-prone neighborhoods or heat-prone neighborhoods, right? And, and thinking about what's the legacy connected with that. So when you think about the context of heat, often you can trace that lineage back to redlining and where certain neighborhoods and certain amenities were, were allocated. So what we have to be really thoughtful about is, is how do we develop strategies that really get at those underlying conditions, right? And sometimes that extends beyond traditional recovery approaches, which is sort of focused on short run job creation, right? Like how do you get people back to the status quo? Um, but we have to sort of acknowledge within that paradigm that the status quo really wasn't working for a lot of people. So really what we need to do is just think about what are those interventions that increases well-being well above pre-disruption levels and doing so in a more sustainable way that, that makes people more able to take advantage of future shocks to the system, right? Like COVID is something that we haven't seen. But what we do know when we sort of trace back just in the last six years in the city is that the cadence of disruption is increasing. So you think about what just happened this year, right? So we had COVID, 
We also had a tropical storm that happened in August, which had a significant impact and particularly the Eastwood community, which we know is an environmental justice community, it impacted 460 structures across the city. We had a heat wave um, in a very hot summer. I think it was the third warmest summer on record for the city, where it was 21 days above 95 degrees. And then we had a sustained period of social unrest connected with anti-Black racism, right? So we're seeing these overlapping factors. We're seeing the compounding effect that they had. And so what we really have to think about is, is that what are the strategies that hit at the, the center of that? And so one example was, is that, you know, the city, uh, again, even before COVID hit, when Mayor Kinney announced his initial budget in March um, for FY fiscal year 21, he really, uh, what was one of the things proposed was a community, it was a scholarship fund at the Community College of Philadelphia that was supposed to provide tuition, free assistance for low-income students, right? Those are sort of the interventions that's gonna get at some of those long-standing uh, inequities that has sort of contributed to, to some of the things that, that we're facing. And so we need to continue to sort of think about what are strategies in that way. And I think that's how we're really gonna get to the sort of transformative initiatives that we need to really move folks forward and increase that well-being that we're, we're hoping to get to. I want to remind. everyone that you're listening to COVID calls and today we're talking about a just recovery in Philadelphia with Celine Chapman, David Kopish and my co-host Felicia Henry and uh, Celine you you brought us into this sort of kind of core definition that we probably should talk about um, I thought we might talk about it later but it's on the table now so let's let's talk about the word recovery because we hear it used a lot it's it's a uh, it's a sort of official kind of word that's used in federal disaster relief and emergency management. And I don't want to pick on my colleagues in emergency management because they work very hard. Uh, they're under-recognized and under-resourced, but I do worry about the way that term is often used, particularly the sense in which it seems to, um, sometimes it says literally to, to get back to normal. So that when the disaster is over, we get back to a normal condition. But Salim, what you were just saying, that the cadence of disruption, what an what a arresting phrase, um, is increasing. And frankly, for too many Americans, normal is a disaster. So what does it mean when this term that's being applied and will be applied as we go into 2021 is already maybe not capturing the amount of disruption and inequality and harm that's already out there in the system. I, David, let me turn to you first on this, just to get your thoughts about the concept of, of recovery and what mm -hmm. kind of interventions you have in mind to get us thinking maybe in a different way. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Um, well, what I would say to that is again, to, to the work that the now I'm now involved in at, at the Hope Center at Temple University, we we do a um, we do a survey every year, every fall, and we're doing it now called the Real College Survey. And what it does is it measures students who are currently enrolled, with part time or full time, what uh, their 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 levels of housing and food insecurity, among other things. And what we found, or what the center has found over the last five years of doing this survey, that pretty consistently students in two-year colleges are 50%, give or take of them, experience uh, food insecurity under normal times, right? And students in four-year universities, again, pretty consistently across the country, about a third of those students are experiencing food insecurity under normal times. We did a survey, less scientific, but a survey in the spring during COVID to see, well, what are these numbers like now during the middle of, of the pandemic? This was April. And the numbers were were higher. Uh, it's hard to compare because the, the way we did that in the spring wasn't quite the same, but the numbers on the surface were higher, as you can imagine. Um, so I guess the question in terms of recovery is, right, going back to normal, 50% of two-year college students experiencing food insecurity at some point in the last 30 days, right, That that's not acceptable. That is not an acceptable normal or recovery, obviously. Um, 
So in some ways, uh, I think we have an opportunity, frankly, uh, this, this um, pandemic has, 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 has been shining a light on an issue of basic needs and security among, among students that um, was not getting a lot of attention beyond some academics and, and researchers and some folks in higher ed. Um, so we now actually have an opportunity to say, you know what, this has been, and this goes to Salim's point, right? Th these kinds of things have been happening to certain groups of folks for many, many years and, and, and decades. And so um, what could, what should recovery look like? I mean, we're, we're kind of promoting three things um, or the Hope Center is promoting three things, I think for recovery. And we're working um, with city leaders and, and um, uh, uh, Salim mentioned the mayor's office um, work with, with CCP and we've been uh, involved with that as well. I think there's sort of three things that, that we think have to happen. And, and one is, um, uh, greater access to uh, to SNAP benefits for folks who are enrolled in college. Um, there was a law passed, I think, last year at the state level that makes it a little easier for community college students to, to get access to SNAP. But generally, it's a little hard for students because of the, the the regs around how many hours you're working or not working, et cetera. But I think if we could figure out uh, a, a way to expand student access to SNAP, that would certainly help um, lessen the, the 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 blow that a lot of students are, are, are feeling right now. The other thing would be um, uh, what is called expansion of emergency aid funds. So um, at Drexel, you you may or may not know that there's they, the the folks in financial aid or student services have an emergency aid fund that a lot of folks don't know about, and and students can access it, but only if they know how, and only if they talk to the right person. And you know, colleges are reluctant to to advertise it because you know it's these funds are not big and they go out easily or quickly. Um, but we, we've been thinking about, you know, could, could the city be involved in and colleges and philanthropy come together and create a sort of citywide emergency aid fund so that if you're a student and you can't make rent next month, which is obviously happened to a lot of students in the spring, uh, you can tap into an emergency aid fund where you don't have to jump through the hoops of FAFSA or other kind of, um, um, paperwork to, to get, but just sort of, you know, you're a student, you present a need, you can get $500 and that could get you through a month and keep you in school. So expansion of emergency aid funds um, would be something that would have to happen. And then related to housing, I think we have to think about, um, you know, with evictions having been on the rise here in the city and a lot of those folks are students, right? Uh, what can colleges in the affordable housing community of Philadelphia do to figure out, you know, how, how do we keep vulnerable students in, in off-campus housing so that they don't stop out, fall out, and never never return to college. So those are, I think, three things that we, we would want to promote. Thanks for that, David. Uh, Salim, I want to pivot back to you. So, you know, in your earlier comments, you started talking about this compounded social vulnerability for different groups, right? And you started bringing in really the legacy of racial inequity, the legacy of environmental injustice for different populations, different neighborhoods, redlining. And so really tying in um, that what we're seeing is not necessarily just now, but really bringing in the past, right? And, and how that plays into the present. So the same question for you in terms of recovery, what are we talking about when we say recovery for these populations that are experiencing really the legacies of um, oppression, of marginalization, of being locked out of accesses and, and opportunities? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, you know, <clears throat> what, what we are seeing is that there, there's a changing paradigm away from this idea of you know, a continuous cycle of periods of disruption and recovery, right? And and so the idea of recovery shouldn't go away holistically, right? I think that we still need that as an important component. We need sort of that immediate interventions that happens to sort of stabilize folks. But what we need to be thinking about once that period ends, where we often sort of maybe miss the boat, is just that there is another layer of interventions that need to come in after we reach that point of stabilization. Because stabilization, again, this gets back people back to the status quo, but then there needs to be another layer of thinking that sort of gets us above that. And that's where the resilience approach comes in at, right? So you, so you start out with like the disruption, you have the recovery, you get to the stabilization, and then you think about resilience in terms of how you make people 
how you guard against the impacts of what will come after that, what the next cycle of disruptions, so, so to speak. And I think that what COVID has really provided the context to do is really mainstream that dialogue in a way that hasn't been before. I think we've seen a lot of conversations between the connection of health and housing, the, the importance of environmental health, right? And how those things exacerbate other vulnerabilities. And so that dialogue is something that I don't, think is going away and we're even seeing signals about these things from from the federal government so you know even before um COVID happened we, we see that funding coming out of the federal government has really pivoted towards this idea of resilience to so getting away from post-disaster funding and really getting to investments that mitigate the impacts before they happen and that's even outside of the emergency management space and in 2018 when Congress passed the Disaster Recovery and Reform Act, was that that same year, the HUD, the Housing and Urban Development Agency, actually put out community block grants, which are typically used to develop housing um, in cities. That incorporated uh, specifically disaster uh, hazard mitigation funding for, for the first time. And so there's this pivot and this paradigm shift in terms of how we get towards more resilience thinking. And even we've seen uh, signals as, as recently as last week. So the, the House passed a bill called the Clean Energy Job and Innovation Act. And what this bill did um, had a lot of not so great things in it for environmental justice communities. So I want to put that out there. But one of the key things it does have is it codified the federal executive order on environmental justice. So there's environmental justice in the federal government is, is sort of a, outlined by an executive order that was signed by President Bill Clinton back in 1994. Well, executive orders aren't really something that is very strong legally. It doesn't give you a lot of new legal rights. It's also dependent on the whims of whoever the, 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 the president is at the time, but the federal administration ideology is. And so that legislation will actually codify that so that we're again getting more stronger funding program and policies that's really targeted at environmental justice because I think folks are seeing it, the nexus between this work um, and really the long-standing vulnerabilities that communities face. Can I just, uh, Salim, follow up with that? I'm glad that you're bringing, um, you're sort of translating changes which may be inscrutable to a lot of people in sort of the way federal emergency management legislation is written and that term resilience um, is an important one in this conversation because it, it it speaks to capacities that individuals or communities have, which may previously have gone um, unrecognized. Yeah, that term environmental justice, uh, just to linger on that for a second, I want to draw you out on that a little bit because you know justice as a framework it, to me implies not only sort of um, making sure that everyone that there's equity and we're striving to that, but there's also um, restitution and reparation, and there's history and and some sort of uh, atonement that seems to be Im implied by that. And I think that's a difficult conversation. I know it's a difficult conversation. It's a conversation Americans have been having a lot more frequently since George Floyd's murder. And I wonder how an office like yours, when you're asked a question, what does environmental justice mean in terms of helping communities make up for lost time, make up for the ground that's been lost in some cases over centuries in some communities? Um, how, do you, I mean, it's almost an impossible question to ask, but I'm gonna ask anyway. I mean, how do, you, how do you deal with the world as it is, but also deal with the world you've inherited? And I think an environment that's especially acute. Yeah, I think for, for, for our office, we try to be very specific and clear about what we mean when we talk about equity um, and understand that that operates across multiple dimensions, right? So you have what's typically associated with these conversations, which is distributive equity, making sure that amenities are the same in particular neighborhood. Housings are, housing quality is as good in one neighborhood as it is in, a, in another. There's also the procedural piece, right? Like who's at the table making decisions? And that's where it's sort of the Environmental Justice Advisory Commission is a really key part of our strategy because it's ensuring that those policies and programs and decisions that our office is making, but also agencies all across city government is really being informed by the lived experience of those who sort of understand what is happening on the ground. And then the last piece is, is making sure that 
the policies and the interventions that we're doing is getting at the structural uh, challenges that historically communities have faced. And so when we did a project um, around heat in, in the Huntington Park neighborhood in, in, in 2018, that was really where we looked at, again, what, are, what was the ultimate root cause of how we got here? And thinking more holistically beyond, you know, it's not just about providing, you know, more tree canopy, which is a key strategy of that plan. But ultimately, we need to understand how, what was the causation for how these neighborhoods got here, got here in order for us to really understand what is the full suite of things we need to do to ensure not only that we get them back to an equitable state, we achieve that distributional equity, but also that we ensure that these things don't happen before. And then to your point, in some ways it might require that we sort of do even more targeted investment than we historically have. And so in the context of, of that example, you know, we might invest more capital investments in the context to increase the tree canopy in Hyam Park because of the historical disadvantages that they face we might in, in my neighborhood of Mount Erie to account for those historical inequities. And so we, what we've kind of turned that is, is that there's place-based strategies needed all across the city to really account for the unique history that those neighborhoods have, have encountered. And so that's how we typically approach, um, you know, those, those sort of past, how to pass sort of uh, effects where we are in the future. One of the things I really appreciate about this conversation is that uh, you're all you all have such clear and specific ideas, and, and it's it seems so important as we move through this pandemic that there are good ideas already teed up and and ready to go um, if if recovery is going to come into effect. Felicia, I want to um, turn to you because we're also lucky that you're an expert um, in incarcerated populations and the issues that are being faced in prisons right now. The op-ed, or excuse me, the obituary that you read at the, at the beginning, of course, is uh, very moving in this regard. Can you talk about this in the concept of a just recovery and what that means for incarcerated persons in Philadelphia or other cities that you may be doing research on? Yeah, so I think, first of all, we have to understand that we need to start including them in the conversation, right? And so I think that it's really important for us to understand that incarcerated people, incarcerated populations, prisons, jail, carceral facilities, institutions are a part of communities, right? They are not just in space where no one lives. They are very much embedded within the communities, even so much so that we're talking about staff members, people's livelihood depend on, you know, working at facilities and also the folks that are in those facilities are, are most often from some of the communities that they're in. And so, number one, I really appreciate that question because we should be talking about it, right? We should be asking ourselves, what does recovery look like for the most some of the most invisible marginalized folks in our in our communities. I think that when we think about specific recovery for them in the context of COVID, that we should be thinking about strategies like decarceration, right? We should be thinking about strategies to reduce populations of people that are behind bars because obviously we've seen over 200,000 Americans have already died. And we're talking about like, not necessarily always in places that are, um, you know, cramped and, and lack social distance. We're talking about just kind of general, even in the community. And when we think about carceral facilities, the lack of ability to social distance, the lack of access to PPE, um, you know, the the lack of information, like basic information um, about what the COVID virus looks like, what are the symptoms and signs. We saw that in the obituary that, you know, way before the American public knew or the world kind of really knew what was going on, it was already impacting people. And so one, I think that just recovery looks like decarceration, just recovery looks like reducing the population that are behind bars and being very intentional about that, right? So I'm not just talking about, okay, let's get the people that are the low hanging fruit, like those that are um, there on, on bail that they can't pay or those with misdemeanors or low, like I'm not talking about that because I think even when we do that, we set up um, these distinctions that are, are really in reinforcing these ideas and notions about punishment and worthiness, right? So I'm talking about literally just decarcerating period. And I think then another thing, um, that we should think about in terms of recovery for incarcerated people is really going back to what Salim was talking about earlier um, and even what David was talking about earlier and really understanding that incarcerated folks are 
folks that have had these compounded social vulnerabilities, right? We're talking about people who have come from communities that have been impoverished, communities that have been oppressed for a really long time, where we're talking about the legacy of racial inequity, even when we're talking about mass incarceration as a tool, as an institution, we're talking about it really being embedded in, you know, controlling the black body, right? So even, even when we're thinking about those notions, I think that it's really important for us to understand that these folks are people that we need to um, really incorporate and include because a lot of people that are incarcerated right now are going to go back home, right? And so what does that look like to take care of them, to include them in the conversation, to include them in disaster management and planning when we know that they will also go back to those same communities that are in, um, you know, these areas that we need to be paying attention to and have been um, places of environmental injustice. So I really think that, you know, just recovery is including them in the conversation, but not also just talking about them, but really including them in the conversation, right? Bringing them to the table and allowing them to generate their own ideas about recovery, their own ideas about what, um, not just going back to the status quo, but really transforming how we think about recovery looks like. And then also very specific, um, very specific uh, strategies like decarceration and, you know, for, for those that are really abolishing, but like, you know, thinking about how we dismantle some of those institutions. Is that, can, is that connected in a meaningful way to the kinds of discussions around defunding the police that have been going on? I mean, they've been going on well before May, but I think that's moved into mainstream political discussion yeah. since May. I mean, it was even discussed in the presidential debate yeah. to the extent there was a debate the other night. Um, that issue was raised. I would have never imagined that that could have come up before in an American presidential debate. Yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely connected, right? I think that instead of you know making it a very polarized issue, when we're thinking about defunding the police, we need to be thinking about how do we not necessarily just monetarily, but start to rely less and less on institutions that inherently oppress, right? Inherently are violent toward different kinds of people or particular populations of people. So I think that even in the conversation around defunding the police in terms of decarceration, in terms of abolition for prison, it's really just linking, all of those things are really linked together to say that there is a continuum of violence that is then carried out of against certain populations of people and really not just them, but it's a part of the integral day-to-day -day of our lives as well. And so I think that those calls are really like, not let's just do this one thing, but let's start to reimagine some of these institutions and our reliance on them. And how do we think about new systems, new institutions, new kind of ways of approaching, um, whether it's issues in the community or whether it's you know these ideas around punishment. David, in May, I, I was looking back at, at some of the interviews you've given. You you spoke to the Philadelphia Tribune. I just want to read a, a brief bit from that. You said, we really are looking to partner. So you're talking about the Hope Center here that you're telling us about earlier. Looking to partner with community organizations that may not see themselves as serving college students. There are already so many great organizations doing things. We want to connect them to colleges. We don't need to reinvent anything. And it ties back, I think, to some of what Celine was talking about earlier, that the pandemic and maybe disasters more generally, it, to the extent that we want to look for opportunity in this moment, it does reshuffle um, the, those who, the groups that we might expect to be focusing on this or that thing. It can break down silos in dramatic ways. I, I wanted to draw you out on that a little bit. I thought it was a really interesting take in that piece. Sure. Um, I think what I was sort of getting out there is that um, there a couple couple things, and this is this predates COVID for sure. And but I think it's it's been ex maybe exposed a little bit. Um, I think that there's a perception um, that if someone has gotten to the point where they're enrolled in college or post-secondary, right, uh, that they are 
doing okay, right? That they've sort of made it in some ways, right? That they're they're on a trajectory to uh, to economic mobility, you know. And I think for that reason, there isn't the there has not been the intention on you know the kind of challenges that they may have grown up with or that their community uh, faced when they grew up in that community. That those things certainly follow them. Just because they're enrolled at CCP or Temple doesn't mean that, you know, whatever challenges it may have faced uh, uh, growing up or in a community that's been uh, disinvested, you know, that, that those challenges don't follow them. Uh, and so I think we have to, part of what I was trying to get at there is that communities, community organizations, nonprofits, so, social service groups um, in Philadelphia communities that have been supporting them and trying to build those communities up, um, you know, what can they do to help continue the success of folks from those communities as they try to get a you know post-secondary degree um and vice versa i think colleges sort of assume when someone enters their building that they have no prior history right that they're sort of a blank slate um and nothing about their community, nothing about their history, nothing about their 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 growing up sort of matters, right? They they enter the the, the hollowed walls of the of the university, and you know not, nothing else outside those walls really matters. So I think those those two things, right? Um, communities sort of, and of course there are groups out there that that's what they do, right? They they help kids get into college and they help support them but those are those are sort of smaller smaller efforts i think if we can think more broadly about uh communities from which folks are are trying to improve their situation by by enrolling in a place like ccp if we can get them to think about the long-term trajectory of that person and um, continue to support them even if they're in college uh, and get and get colleges to see you know what there's a there's a wealth of expertise right outside their doors right there there are community groups with literally within the shadows of, of our major institutions here in the city um, that know these folks really well and know the communities that they come from right uh, and they they have some of the answers to helping those students thrive and and, and staying in school and, and you know doing well so I think it's a matter of, and, and that's literally what we're, we're trying to do. We're, we're literally introducing, we're having a gathering in a couple of weeks of community organizations and, and college um, leadership, uh, literally just to introduce them to each other. Um, I mean, certainly there are some community college, um, uh, community and college partnerships that exist in, in the city, but by and large, a lot of colleges don't see beyond their four walls to say, you know what, the answers to some of the challenges that our students are facing are could be found right literally within a stone's throw and we need to kind of open ourselves up to that. So does that answer your question there? Absolutely. Thank you. So I know that we're getting close to time and so wanted to kind of pose this final question to you both. So as we're gearing up for an election season, as we are I'm really kind of thinking about all of the things that you both brought up in terms of kind of those federal overlays, those state overlays, and kind of the differences that might be coming um, kind of on the horizon. What should national leaders, local leaders really start to do or consider to ensure that 2021, to the extent, you know, that we don't have another major pandemic, um, isn't worse for residents of, of Philadelphia and, and other communities? David, I'll kick it to you first. Sure. Uh, I guess if I had to pick one, uh, which is tough, I'll, I'll go back to what I mentioned earlier about um, um, uh, the SNAP uh, program, right? Uh, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or what people used to call food stamps, right? There is a growing momentum, I think, in the country of folks uh, saying that um, if we that 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 really is the the best strategy to reduce food insecurity period uh but if we're talking and again in, in my particular case now around college students right uh expanding access to snap for college students uh would would be a huge step forward i think in terms of strengthening the safety net for those kinds of students so that they don't they don't fall out because that's that's the big fear now that students are either going to fall out now or never return um and that would be a disaster. So I, I would say, you know, expanding SNAP access would be a huge, a huge um, a step forward. Thank you for that. Celine? 
Yeah, so I think it's really important that we use this moment to, to really move beyond piecemeal approaches, right? I think so often we find ourselves in these same periods because the way in which we approach recovery after the fact is removed from how residents are experiencing these issues. So residents aren't experiencing, you know, housing in one way, they aren't experiencing um, climate change in another way, they aren't experiencing education and equities in another way, they're experiencing these impacts cumulatively. And so it's important that we align our systems to be able to tackle at the intersection of those issues and not necessarily pursuing them singularly. I'm gonna, Felicia, if you don't mind, I'm gonna turn that same question to you. Uh, there will be a, an administration, it might be a continuation or it might be a new administration. What would you like to see back on this issue of incarcerated uh, population in Philadelphia? How could federal policy change in 2021 that could make a more just recovery from this pandemic for that subset? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's a tough question because I think that a lot of what we see, especially as it relates to incarceration, really plays out on a more local state level. And so I think that there are some things that, you know, some things that could be that could happen on happen on the federal level. Um, some policies um, kind of put in place. But I, I think most, more than that, most of all, I think at the state or local level, I, there's a lot of power for governors, for kind of local bodies to be able to say, we're going to use uh, clemency, right? We're going to use parole and we're going to change um, kind of the statutes, the legislation around some of these release options that you know, are archaic and, and really bungled in a lot of things, we're going to start to change that and shift that, right? I think that um, even in kind of coming together, I think for a local kind of community organizing, and this is this is happening and, and has been happening, but really for communities and um, kind of community members to, to push legislature, right? So in New York, New York State, so where I'm from, um, we just had a hearing, um, the, the Senate put on a hearing on COVID-19 and incarceration, and there were over a dozen um, folks that came and um, testified at that hearing. But I think what was really powerful is that we got all of these folks across the field, the kind of across the realm to come and say, like, this is really, really important and speak directly to the legislature and say, hey, like, we want your help and need your help to kind of put these things in action. So I think for me, it really comes down not necessarily on this larger federal level, but on a state level for communities and community members, um, for grassroots and community-based organizations to come together and start really pushing their local leaders to say, hey, this is an issue that we want you to take up and we want you to push forward and do something about it. You know, to me, it's such an important over, um, insight and, and a sort of overview um, point to make, which is that um, so many of these issues are, are national in scope or international in scope. But like the pandemic itself, it's playing out in local areas. I mean, I think this is, you know, like climate change and many of the other um, disasters or economic insecurity. You know, there's a federal, there's a sort of range of federal options. But the reality is that, and this is true historically, cities are often the place where solutions are tried and some work and some don't. Um, and particularly in disasters, it's not going to look the same in Philadelphia as it's going to look in Buffalo and St. Louis and Dallas, Miami. Um, so... I want to thank you all for the sort of range of really creative options that you've brought to this um, to this discussion. Let me just get a quick round. We're up on time, but maybe each of you tell us how we can find more about your work. Felicia, how do we, you're a prolific writer in addition to all of the other things you do. How do we find your writing? Oh, thank you so much. Um, you can find um, my writing on Medium. It's Henry Felicia A. Um, I also have a website, uh, FeliciaHenry.com. And I'm on Twitter too, so you'll find all of those things in that area. But most of all, um, you can find my work on Medium and um, at the University of Delaware on our site. Okay, and David, same question to you. How do we learn more about your work at this time? Sure, uh, you, the best places would be Hope for number four college, hopeforcollege.com. That's the Hope Center at Temple University. Uh, and if folks are interested in learning more about uh, the work of power, which again, I'm, I'm no longer a staff person, but involved and support their work, it's powerinterfaith.org, powerinterfaith.org.
Okay, thank yep. you, and Salim, same question to you, although you work for the city, so I guess we know where to find you, but uh, tell us maybe, you know, especially like the Greenworks kind of stuff, how do we find out more about these projects? Yeah, so, so the best way to, to do that is to go to philo.gov slash green, um, and there's a list of all the publications that um, I mentioned today, not only just Greenworks, but also Beat the Heat Highland Park, which is sort of our first uh, community-based climate adaptation plan, which focuses on heat. Um, so I encourage folks to go there and learn more. Great. Well, I want to remind everybody that you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Monday. I'll be talking about the Anthropocene and the pandemic with Christoph Rosal from the Max Planck Institute and Bernd Scherer from the House of World Culture in Berlin. So please do join me on Monday for that. And David Kopisch and Celine Chapman, thank you so much for your time this afternoon and this really important discussion for what's possible in Philadelphia. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And my co-host, Felicia, thanks a lot. That was a pleasure. Okay, we'll have to do this again. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you on Monday. Bye Thank you. Bye.